0: Let's see if this actually even uh, tweeted out. Oh, there we go. All right. We're live. All right. Hello, everybody. This is Aaron Day. This is the Aaron Day Show. This is our very first episode. Um, I am actually producing this myself, so I apologize in advance if there are any technical issues Uh, This show is all about stopping the march towards digital tyranny. And if you've been following me at all, um, I know some of you are new to this whole concept or you've read my book, The Final Countdown. Uh, In my opinion, the biggest single threat to human liberty is central bank digital currencies. Central bank digital currencies are essentially a programmable form of digital money that can be monitored, tracked, and censored by Government and can be used to control your behavior. It's the basis for social credit systems, vaccine passports, the whole nine yards. And I go into a lot of this in depth in my book. What I've been doing is going around the country educating people on alternatives. And the actual alternative and the way to protect yourself against CBDCs isn't at the ballot box, which I have a very lengthy article. Uh, at at the Brownstone Institute about, it's actually by taking direct action. It's by boycotting the dollar because it's the dollar, it's fiat currency that's going to be forced into becoming a digital form of fiat currency, which is CBDC. So I started this podcast to go and expand on what is in the book and what's in my workshop. And because the CBDC landscape is changing at a fast rate, as, is, as are the alternatives, the crypto market in particular, I want to make sure to give everybody in-depth information on everything that's going on. Uh, just to let you know, I am a fellow at the Brownstone Institute, and if you're not familiar with the Brownstone Institute, they are really the front lines for dissidents who are focused on sharing the truth. Uh, and this, the, the Brownstone, really, uh, the Brownstone Institute was started out of the COVID pandemic, when basically no other organization was really willing to stand up against the lockdowns, the mandates, the censorship, and the vaccine mandates and so forth. And so um, starting this year, I became a fellow at the Brownstone Institute. And I really encourage you to take a look at their work and to consider contributing to the organization because it is a completely donor-led organization. They don't have large institutional financial support. Um, So uh, please, I I encourage you to consider that. And also you can find out more about what I'm doing, the book, the workshop and everything else at day2024.com. I'm really excited today uh, to have Kurt Wookert Jr. on as our first guest, particularly in light of everything that's going on with both CBDCs and Bitcoin. Uh, And as you'll learn today, if you aren't already familiar with it, there is an ongoing civil war within Bitcoin that is culminating in a huge lawsuit right now uh, in London, which pits COPA, the Crypto Open Patent Alliance, against Craig Wright over. Determining whether Craig Wright is Satoshi Nakamoto, and there are a lot of implications for that, which we are going to get into. <clears throat> I've known Kurt informally for about a decade. We actually just met in person the first for the first time last year. Yep. Uh, I love his work. Uh, I've been following him very closely, and his background is: uh, Kurt's a South Florida-based entrepreneur, investor, and Bitcoin advocate. <clears throat> um, he's a chief. Bit, he's the chief. Bit- Bitcoin historian publishing exclusively with CoinGeek. He leverages experience in mining, business, and cybersecurity to illuminate the past and future of Bitcoin. A veteran of the Bitcoin Civil War, Kurt champions Satoshi's original vision for a true peer to peer cash system. His clear explanations and spirited commentary have made him a sought after voice, appearing on Fox Business and leading podcasts. You can find him hosting CoinGeek Weekly Live Stream, where he fosters lively discussions on Bitcoin's evolution. Kurt's passion extends beyond the blockchain. He's a dedicated martial artist uh, holding a black belt in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and coaching his local gyms competition team. When not immersed in Bitcoin or on the mats, Kurt finds balance through family and friends and his commitment to his church community. So thank sure, you for listen. joining us, Kurt.
1: <laughs> Good to be here, Aaron. Uh, looking Looking forward to our talk.
0: Yep, me too. How much time do you have, by the way? I,
1: I, uh, I, booked an hour, but I could probably go along. Let me double check here. I have another thing at two thirty Eastern, so hour and twenty-ish.
0: Okay, great. Uh, Kurt interviewed me on CoinGeek, and I know I think we went for a couple of hours, and so I, I, <laughs> I know this. The, yeah, this this conversation could go a lot of different ways, but uh, knowing that time time constraint we'll we'll try to work within that. Um, so just to give you a little bit more background, you know, from my perspective, I, I've been involved in crypto since 2012. And in fact, I've I exited the the dollar. I exited fiat currency in 2019 and went completely into crypto gold and silver. Um, when I talk about alternatives and I want to make sure because a lot of the people in in this audience are not necessarily familiar with crypto at all and there's a huge you know division between well should I even use crypto or gold or silver I am a I'm opposed to cbdcs and I am I'm opposed or, and I'm and I support all alternatives so I am not pushing any particular crypto or and I don't have any particular bias even amongst crypto gold or silver and I don't have any financial, interest. you know, Nobody's paying me to promote any particular um, alternative. And also understand when I talk about crypto, I'm not making investment advice or even looking at it from the perspective of how it might increase your portfolio. I'm more interested in a substitute for cash, a substitute that you can use as a medium of exchange so that we don't get stuck with government run central bank digital currencies. So that just as a broad disclaimer, as I go into all of these podcasts, I wanna let everybody know that perspective. And just to give a little bit of understanding, because some people don't understand the difference between crypto and central bank digital currencies. And in particular, when I'm talking about crypto, I'm talking about cryptocurrencies that are based on Satoshi Nakamoto's Bitcoin white paper, there are 20,000 or so different cryptocurrencies, 99% of them are not candidates to be alternatives for cash. So everything that I will be talking about is going to be something that's based on, on that white paper. And there's a lot of back and forth as to what how that should, should be implemented, which we'll discuss further. But CB, the difference between CBDCs and crypto, the Bitcoin flavor are this, CBDCs are completely centralized. Bitcoin is decentralized, CBDCs are are permissioned, meaning there's centralized control over who can use them. Bitcoin is non-permissioned. Bitcoin is transparent. The typical implementations of CBDC are it's not transparent. Uh, Bitcoin offers an immutable ledger where you can see all of the transactions and you can't go back and reverse them or change them. There's a permanent record that is in, in place and that's audited roughly every 10 minutes. So, Whereas you don't get any of those benefits, at least from the way CBDCs have been implemented so far. So it's a pretty big difference. And I I point this out at the beginning because for people new to this, a lot of people can't distinguish between CBDCs and crypto. It's all the same thing. And in fact, most of the time when I talk to people, I traveled to 20 states or so last year. Most people only know crypto as a speculative asset. The use case of crypto as money isn't even something that's on the forefront. So we, we have yeah. a long way to go, even though we're 15 years into this. So with that as the as the uh, the preamble, again, thank you for joining, Kurt. And and you know, could you share a little bit about your background and journey into Bitcoin and sure. like crypto, the whole thing?
1: So I'm, me and you have sort of similar paths. I mean, big, big libertarian circle stuff. Uh, I used to write for various libertarian rags, always under a pen name. Uh, when I was younger, I, I didn't want people to realize how young I was when I was writing. So, um, I But I started doing it in high school, um, that kind of thing. Uh, when the sort of Occupy Wall Street and the Tea Party kind of backlash stuff all happened, this is kind of uh, two, 2007, 2008, sort of era um you know bank collapse that kind of thing um it it felt like big vindication for what i had been talking about with like the need for libertarian policy and better monetary policy basically sound money monetary policy the kind of stuff that you'd hear from ron paul or peter schiff and you know talking about how a bank could run and how a country could run uh you know with with a relationship with a healthy kind of bank um you know so when when things started collapsing it was like oh my gosh this is it but we don't have a replacement there is no tool for fixing this and so um you know i was a i was a gold bug so for me it was always like precious metals and here's your options and i always really like commodities i'm a chicagoan by uh by birth and so i knew a lot of commodities traders and guys talking about salt and pork bellies and you know all this other stuff going on in the world and So I always really wanted to have a commodity backed currency as what we think of now as like real world asset tokenization um, that that Bitcoin sort of allows us to have. But we didn't have those tools back then. And so there wasn't a feasible way to do it. Um, I owned a printing company. I was just an entrepreneur. Uh, I I worked in that industry for a long time. In 2012, uh, I had some friends that were doing activism, some kind of end the Fed related rally in, in Chicago. And a guy asked me if I would accept Bitcoin in exchange for printing some posters for the, uh, for the event. And uh, so that was the first time anybody ever told me about Bitcoin. Um, you know, I, I said, fine. It was like a $150 job. So I kind of didn't care. Uh, just thought it was sort of novel. Uh, and then, I don't know, sometime in the next six months, my brother got an offer to work for a gentleman named Adam Kokesh uh who had a, a channel called adam versus the man uh, back in the day it was one of one of my favorite youtube channels of all time uh and adam offered my brother a gig basically to uh do s- something related to his video operations but part of it was he either needed to be paid in i think it was bitcoin or steam or steam dollars at the time yep. so um so that was the second time i heard bitcoin and that was pretty early 2013 i was like okay i guess I guess this is a, an emerging thing amongst people that I like and so I, I that's that's when I read the white paper and got really into it uh, I started mining uh by the end of the year and um lost my ass frankly uh mining the first year because I, I bought asics uh basically at the top of their market they took like I don't even know it took felt like a year for them to deliver by the time I received them they were too inefficient to make money and whatever else but I I, I got the bug at that point I opened my Coinbase account, I think in late 2013, started buying Bitcoin and, you know, kind of the rest is history. I I did a little foray into altcoins and stuff when the Bitcoin civil war became, uh, you know, like, hey, Bitcoin's not going to scale and it's been taken over by a bunch of friggin' lizards. And so uh, I got a little bit into ETH and Monero and some other stuff, like looking for some other, you know, similar technology. And then when bitcoin cash sort of emerged out of all that when it was clear that there was going to be a big blocker experiment in bitcoin that included things like tokens and data and all this other stuff I was like oh okay so i guess there is a bitcoin community that is still interested in uh, doing all that cool stuff and so i fell into that camp and uh, been a big blocker ever since Uh, i followed the bsv uh, fork for technological reasons in 2018 as well Um, basically it's it's whoever was saying look bitcoin can And whatever comes at the end of that sentence if if that just sentence keeps on getting bigger and bigger that's that's the direction i'm gonna go uh bitcoin really is capable of all kinds of it's capable of anything that money or the internet was ever capable of and uh the people who want to work on that are the people that i want to work with and so i'm i'm in the bsv camp (laughs) for better or for worse at this point uh you know sometimes it feels like a lot of worse but uh but the technology itself um it's the tool. It's it's the hammer that actually builds the house. And so, uh, if I can be the guy wielding the hammer, I can sort of help how, how the house looks at the end of it. At least I hope.
0: Well, that makes sense, and that's a very similar path for me. I you know I went from BTC using it. Uh, I mean, actually used it for political campaigns. I you know I remember in mm-hmm. 2017 you could use it at Expedia and a bunch of of, of stores would yep. actually take it directly. You didn't have to go through any intermediaries. And then all of a sudden in December. Of 2017, it was clogged, and and the transaction yeah. fees jumped to like what, 50 bucks or more in some some yeah. instances, and it was taking Longer. days to process transactions. And so everybody, um, while the price was going up, people realized that you couldn't actually use it for its intended purpose. And and so when I talk yeah. to people, again, most of the people that I'm talking to, and, and a lot of these are really smart people, and some of these are 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 they're sound money people, but but crypto is just off their radar or it's not that it's off yeah. their radar i think it's it's tainted to a degree where they see in the mainstream media you know sam bankman freed or whatever too much, there's too
1: much noise you know you get yep. you get past the first dozen blockchains that even exist and you're already like okay this is just a clown show it's it's a bunch of it's a bunch of nonsense so and i think that's by design personally
0: i think it's by design too and that leads me to my next actual topic which is i want to talk about the the original civil war, like what, what happened in 2017? And because, because you were there as well. And and I, and I jumped into BSV. I followed the fork I followed all this stuff, but I wrote an article about this um, that was published in zero hedge about some interesting developments that I found very disturbing. Mm -hmm. Um, the develop, one of the developments is that there have been three major CBDC pilot programs in the United States, and the MIT Multimedia Lab has been involved in all of them. And the guy that was the chair of that organization um, received funding from Jeffrey Epstein. And, and in fact, through Jeffrey Epstein, a lot of other people, including Bill Gates. And this was after Epstein had already been found. Everybody knew Epstein's reputation. And I, I found that uh, there was an article where Epstein was actually interviewed and he was talking about Bitcoin. And it was from 2017. And he said that, well, he doesn't see it as a currency. He sees it as digital gold. And I, I don't know when that, that narrative actually started, but I was actually floored to see, because I only stumbled upon that article recently, that Epstein was referring to it as digital gold. And why this is important is that MIT. Media Lab not only funded the CBDC projects, but that same chairman of the MIT Multimedia Lab funded SegWit and funded some of the developers involved in making the changes to Bitcoin, what is now BTC. And so what what have, what have you seen? What, what was your experience and what's your kind of knowledge of that
1: whole thing? So, so it goes a little further back. Um, you know... <laughs> It's it's kind of funny to to see how far back it actually goes because it, you know you could you could say that the the first problem was this and then you can go back another six months and say Oh no maybe the first problem was that but um you you really <laughs> you can get really conspiratorial about the about the real early days unfortunately everybody was using aliases and you kind of can't know who was who uh, in the early Satoshi days but um that kind of digital gold conversation actually was pretty immediate. Um, Satoshi Nakamoto was arguing with guys like James Donald and, and some of the other gentlemen on, uh, uh, you know, like the cryptography mailing list and things even about, no, here's why it's cash and here's why it scales. And here's why you don't need to run a node and all this other, you know, the technobabble stuff. But, um, I think it really caught on if you look at the first real run-up. So 2013 and 14, a bunch of key things happened, uh, in 2013, it was the first Full year that satoshi was all the way gone out of the project he had largely disappeared by by the end of 2010 but he would pop in occasionally he was still kind of in private communication with a few people in 2011 and 12 but then 13 he just was all the way gone had moved on with his life seemingly and um and and basically the sophomore class had kind of taken over and if you look at the sophomore class it was guys like gregory maxwell and peter todd and and some of these guys who you know today you might think of as legendary bitcoin core developers but these guys were hardline advocates for um, sort of dark web money. They, they were encouraging to like the Silk Road business model, which Satoshi was explicitly against. Um, and, you know, and if you're going to be using money for crime, it needs to be more like a digital gold. Uh, it, it need, so it it sort of moved away from being like, hey, here's this hyper liquid, hyper useful cash system. And it's like, no, 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 no. Wouldn't it be more valuable if we kept it as sort of a crime niche? Uh, and obviously that's helpful if you're the criminal. Uh, and I really think that's what Jeffrey Epstein saw in it too. I mean, imagine the banking problems that guy would have had. So uh, having a tool yeah. that that would allow him to move value across borders easily. Uh, you know that's that's a big thing. but but you also see the founding of some of the early uh, venture capital groups that that got involved in Bitcoin too. And I think the first one, if you look at the earliest history, you see MasterCard Ventures, which is kind of the investment wing of MasterCard, the, the credit card payment company. And they they created a uh, basically a module to look into Bitcoin. and And this isn't public, but what I think they discovered is, oh, shoot, this is a very powerful payments technology that undermines our control of the payments economy in the Western Hemisphere. And therefore, it's a competitor. Uh, and much the same way that, you know, you hear drug companies, uh, you know, if somebody invents a $10 cure for breast cancer, like they're going to try to buy it. Like, okay, here's $50 million. We're patenting the shit out of it and we'll put it on the shelf and we'll continue selling what we currently sell, which is a lot more profitable than that. And I think MasterCard basically did the same thing. So over the course of about a year and a half, they created a massive incubator. They brought in a bunch of other old world uh, money. Including like New York Life Insurance Company, uh, CME Ventures, which is uh, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, and uh, you know, a bunch of other like hundred plus year old finance companies to create a blockchain incubator. Um, This was called Digital Currency Group. Digital Currency Group invested in basically every company that existed in the blockchain space at the time. So, this is your uh, early like angel round level, like blockstream lightning labs coinbase kraken all these companies that today are you know multi billion dollar valued companies and sort of the vanguard of the of the blockchain economy these were uh mostly plucky little startups run by guys in their 20s who were you know just basically thought bitcoin was bitcoin was cool uh and then you get these digital currency groups show up and you know what kind of 20 year old says no to a 50 million dollar check to kind of join this uh group of other disruptive companies and who knows what strings are attached to that well all of a sudden this shift from bitcoin is a really useful means of exchange or, or tokenization or some of these other stuff to bitcoin's digital gold and it's this trading pair asset uh so just trade everything against btc and accumulate more btc because btc is valuable and you want to accumulate it and so here's just this massive pile of altcoins you can trade against and we'll turn it into a casino economy and it's great and so Normal people get rewarded if they trade well, which is addictive for all the reasons casinos are addictive. And then it's no longer a threat to all the companies that invested in creating this incubator. And so I think there was a, you know, 2013 to 2017 was this era where they set up all these dominoes to basically like, look, we need to make people think it will make them money. It needs to make them enough money where, to where they shut up about what, it, what else it could even do. And then by the time the world knows what Bitcoin is, they will know what it is in a way that is inaccurate. And so we don't lose our monopoly on payments and banking and all this other stuff. And so uh, by 2017, it had come to a a fever pitch. Uh, All the people that wouldn't be bought uh, had been kicked out of the conversation. And all the people that were working for the right venture capital companies were now in uh, seats of power controlling uh bitcoin via the software repo and and node operation stuff and mining pools Uh, and what what we've come to realize is a very powerful uh tool really it's the exchanges and choosing tickers and and all that kind of stuff because people already don't know what bitcoin is so when somebody says hey open up a coinbase account and coinbase says this is bitcoin just buy it that's what you do okay cool i just bought it i've joined some revolution maybe i get rich and then when they do get rich, now they're a foot soldier for whatever that sort of controlled opposition is, and uh, yeah. And then the rest of us, the you know, what I call the real Bitcoiners, left in 2017, and we've been working on implementing the real Bitcoin ever since. Frankly,
0: yeah. No, I mean I think that's a, I mean that's a fascinating history that I want to dig into a little bit more because I, I mean, I'm particularly interested in this idea of intentionally sabotaging it while bringing in Cbdc at the same time and the fact that there's an intersection of of the same players and one of the things that always struck me when I read the Bitcoin white paper and then read some of Satoshi's comments was the idea that not only is this a a currency that's separated from state and 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 possibly an alternative to the complete failure of fiat currency but it enables a whole new type of business model and way to even use cash through micropayments. Mm-hmm. And in my experience as a, my background as a serial entrepreneur, my first company was an e-commerce company that I started in 1995 and we dealt with 150 distributors and so we basically had a lot of uh, time and money being spent just handling and dividing payments and paying these things out over time. You pay this vendor sixty days. You have to pay this vendor, and you you have a credit card transaction that comes in. You have to pay thirty cents plus plus two point nine percent. And so by the time you know, there's just a lot of friction
1: with yeah, respect to
0: that business. So if I so if I had a, a, a micro payment platform, that would have been great. My second company was a healthcare company where we used financial incentives to reward people for improving their health. And and actually, well, Obamacare killed it because uh, it basically said you can't reward people for results. But even beyond uh, Obamacare, we were using debit cards, and Dodd Frank actually killed that. So our debit card vendor was put out of business. Our check that we then used a vendor for checks that would have handled like a check writing service for multiple clients, and so they would pool money into one. one bank account and then issue the checks more cost effectively and the attorney general came in and basically said well one of your clients might be doing offshore gaming so we're going to seize all of your clients funds which created a whole bunch of issues for us so if i had had micro payments that would have been a game changer and that's just from so every business that i've been involved in would have been materially different from this but then there's a whole new set of businesses. With like, I mean, it's a threat to Wall Street. I mean, excuse me, to Silicon Valley itself. Yeah. Because most of these new technology platforms are based on advertising models, where you're you are the customer, you are the uh, the data, you are their revenue model, and it's Mm -hmm. your information that they're selling, and that's what they're monetizing. And so, a really scalable, decentralized currency like this is a threat to Silicon Valley in general, isn't, is it not?
1: Oh, absolutely. So and in fact, I would argue this is an even bigger deal. So I, I got into Bitcoin basically on the same premise. We need to, you know, undermine the Fed's monopoly, maybe not necessarily get rid of it, but at least insert some competition and make them have to uh, deal with market forces and maybe their behavior gets better. But after seeing the way that, uh, you know, the last 20 years of internet culture has evolved, the people with the most money and power Really aren't even the government anymore. I mean, the the government is using Amazon to run all of their critical infrastructure, and they're buying data from Twitter and Facebook in order to monitor us properly. So the NSA, uh, you know, used to be the big baddie, but frankly, you know, Mark Zuckerberg has way more power than than even the NSA does. Now, obviously, there's you know some checks and balances in theory where uh, you know there would need to be a court order or you could stop someone like Mark or you know but but when when silicon valley really has has kind of changed the way that all of this works then you sort of you have a technocracy that is is a little bit difficult to understand unless you work in tech but i think a lot of people sort of intrinsically understand that um you know if you start talking about soccer shoes or joining a beer club or or like hey i want to maybe i want to take a trip to japan all of a sudden you start getting advertised things that are relevant to the stuff you were talking about and so there's yep. some add module somewhere that is listening to you and calculating what your browsing history really means in order to uh, take your data and advertise to you more effectively. And so (laughs) you really are. You you are just the aggregate value of your data to uh, the real rulers of the real economy today. And what Bitcoin does um, at scale, the real Bitcoin, like the system that is Bitcoin, allows you to control your data uh, it allows you to sell it or lease it or rent it to whoever wants to buy it, but you get compensated for your data and they would have to make you cryptographically aware of how your data is being used. So let's say instead of you know logging into Twitter with your Google email address and then logging into all kinds of other sites with your Google or your Twitter or your Facebook account, where now they're kind of aggregating all your information. What if you logged in with your Bitcoin keys, which is something that is totally feasible to do? It's the exact same kind of technology where you know you have a basic identity associated to your keys, uh, and you can log in and, and you can share whatever information you choose to share, but you can demand micropayments for it because you know, Tom, Dick, and Jane, their their info is not really worth dollars per hour to anybody. It's probably worth, you know, a penny or less per hour. But if you had a way to pay that, you could pay that in a way that that makes more sense. Now, obviously, your internet influencers and stuff, you know, maybe maybe someone like you, Aaron, because you're, uh, you know, you've run for president, uh, you know, that your time is worth a little bit more to the overlords. But, but ultimately, what what it is is we need to figure out a way first to get people to monetize their own data instead of it going through Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey's, you know, gatekeeping first. But then there's also this concept of the ownership economy of your own data. So your data is an asset. So what if you could use your data, like your aggregate data as collateral for a loan for a car or a loan to start a business or something like that? Like You start to get this ownership economy about your own data because data is money in every regard today. And you could use it. To, to be the background asset instead of having your credit score and your, you know, your kind of old world Fiat identity for, for the Western hemisphere, it turns into, you know, what is your real value to the real world uh, in, in an open market? And so, um, yeah, controlling your, your social interactions, controlling your data, uh, making it that I think another simple one would be, you know, you go to a bar and you're, you know, 23 years old and you hand your driver's license over to the bartender, you know, Knows he can serve you a drink, but he also probably knows where you live and other stuff that he doesn't need to know. And so if he's some kind of creep, that like you've just doxed yourself to some kind of creep in order to get a drink. Now, what Bitcoin also allows you to do is simply give a yes-no using a QR code as to whether you are allowed to be served a drink in that jurisdiction, period. They don't even need to know your name or any other identifying information. You simply show an app. With your phone that is connected to Bitcoin, it's connected to some kind of identity apparatus that says, Kirk can have a beverage here, because that's the only amount of information that that bartender needs to know about you. And there's all kinds of other situations that have a similar sort of, uh, you know, a situation where you don't need to be oversharing. And if you can stop from oversharing, that would be good for you. Because how many data breaches do we have in a year where all of a sudden, I mean, I get like four or five a year in my mailbox, like, hey, you've you're, you're subject to get a $12 reward because your data was used by some company you didn't know existed that sold it inappropriately or got it hacked or whatever. And here's your settlement. it's like, oh, good grief. You know, (laughs) what, what else is out there now? And, you know, Bitcoin solves all of those problems as well as all kinds of other like cybersecurity related stuff. Like, uh, you know, file logging and all these other things that, that protect data truly. And um, it's it's the kind of world that we have to move toward or else we are going to be, uh, you know, the U.S. government and, and the Federal Reserve Bank are going to struggle to maintain their control in 50 years because Silicon Valley overlords are going to have too much power. They're going to be the next big baddie to defeat. And uh, we, we have the tools and we, we need to get them into uh, into the places that matter.
0: Yeah, well, I, I mean, I actually think to that point, and and I, I put this in my book, and I know people, like Craig has even said these kinds of things are conspiratorial, like this idea of, of moving towards a one world government. And it, it is yeah. it is a conspiracy, but it is not a theory. It's actually well documented. The people state it in their own words. And, and, and in fact, there are groups that have been working on this for the last five decades. And, and in fact, sure. in my view, the, the end goal of this is one global CBDC that's actually probably backed by energy. So the entire technocracy movement even going back to the 1930s the the concept behind it was to replace a price-based system with an energy-based system. And so this is this is a system where um, they literally want to control every aspect of your life from the top down, every decision that you make. And and they can control that because if they can control, they have to be able to manage all of the energy produced and energy consumed. So they basically yeah. shut off our free will, shut off markets and shut off our ability to explore the unknown. And they, and in the most charitable case, they're doing it because they think that they're smarter than everyone else. And we're going to die because we're going to run out of resources <laughs> unless we let these yeah. brilliant scientists and engineers. And so but what this is this this movement towards globalization that groups like the trilateral commission have been working on has been going on for for 5 decades and it's been all about eroding national sovereignty in favor of large corporate interests and and to your point it is these large corporations out of silicon valley in particular that have dominated in recent years and and have more and more control more and more uh, access to to information it's kind of like i know there are there's a supreme court case about the overreach Biden versus Missouri, Mm -hmm. the the overreach regarding COVID information and and even election information. And now we know the FBI had direct access in. And in fact, there were uh, Jira's and and basically software systems. It wasn't just algorithmic. There were actually teams of people coordinating amongst multiple silicon valley companies to take down information and content the minute it was put up and again not even yep. inaccurate information they even created a new category called misinformation you know which is basically something that well it may be true but it's harmful that the truth gets out i mean it's something right <laughs> out of out of orwell so we, yeah, so we we're up. seeing that and and it's going at a really fast pace and so the reason i'm doing everything that i'm doing right now is that i i've, I've watched what's what's happened and i'm like Wow! If we don't stop, in particular, CBDs, CBDCs, in the way they're being implemented, then we're going to lose the ability to even protest on any other issue. Because once yeah. your money can be controlled centrally, they can control your speech, they can control your behavior, and so then you you lose the ability to protest. And so that's that's the the, the issue. And I just to go back to this whole the the kind of the civil war within Bitcoin. I mean, what you laid out in terms of the potential of what you can do with the bitcoin white paper as achieved at scale i mean in terms of micropayments ownership of your own data i mean it's really re- it is the ultimate decentralization and it's empowering the yeah. individual um, to the maximum case possible so you compare that potential to what it means to have digital gold and yeah. you know part of part of me and 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 i get into a lot of trouble for this cuz i'm not again i'm not firmly in any, i'm i'm interested in the outcome um, I'm interested in I'm interested in the truth, but I'm ultimately interested in, in the truth and, and in a way that actually preserves liberty and preserves yeah. free will. And, and there's gray everywhere. Like it, there, there's, there's very, there's very
1: got, little pragmatism allowed in, in Bitcoin conversations. So <laughs> there's,
0: there's very little pragmatism. But I mean, I know some people that were involved very early on in Bitcoin, like Roger Ver. And I, I actually yeah. learned about Bitcoin from the same person Roger Ver learned about Bitcoin from Ian Freeman. And I sure. was at his sentencing hearing. He's in federal prison for eight years for selling yeah. Bitcoin.
1: No, his story is awful. Yeah. Uh,
0: it, it it it's an awful story. And and so, you know, so there are the people that'll say, Well, what you're saying is conspiratorial. People want CBDC's, you know, it's efficiency and everything else, and this stuff is gonna work at scale. And it's like, this stuff is already the crackdown's going on. In fact, right now there's a bill working its way into the Senate Banking Committee that Elizabeth Warren drafted that's essentially the equivalent of a crypto ban i mean it's going to it's going to clamp down on um, anti money laundering and kyc stuff but to a a level that's essentially going to be banning self self custody crypto wallets and so like this legislation has been drafted i spoke with senator ted cruz who put forward a bill ted, ted cruz his opinion was that he thinks the Federal Reserve will act unilaterally without Congress. So he tried to put in a bill to prevent Congress from acting unilaterally to implement a CBDC, and he got no traction. It was shut down. My conversation with him and and part of why I'm sharing some of this is there are I I talk to a lot of people that have a kind of a mindset of governments and central banks are going to pick the best technology technology. And it's going to be a competitive marketplace, and it is all about the best tech, and that has absolutely nothing to do with the decision making process. Nor does it have anything to do with the intent. And and yeah. when I, my my run for president was to elevate this issue, but in the process, I talked to um, Vivek Ramaswamy, who read my book, mm-hmm. and and subsequently convinced Trump to come out anti CBDC, which again, it's a political promise. Sure, uh, but, but in talking to Congress and everything else, if they tried to implement a CBDC, which my concern is that they might before the 2024 election, there is no political will or ability to stop it based on the current configuration of Congress and knowing yeah. that President Biden's already signed an executive order Authorizing the exploration of it, so people people yes. don't know people are like oh this is way far off. No, the president signed an executive order in 2022 authorizing exploring it while cracking down on all other digital assets, which they've been doing. And so we're in a real difficult situation. So that's a on a, a, a little bit back off topic. I want to go back to so what what happened yeah. with then BTC to BCH, and then and then BCH to BSV because I am yep. trying to let people know that that origin. So, story.
1: The, the very simplest version is is that the BTC people said that you, you need to have a very hard and very low cap on total bandwidth across the network. Uh, so Bitcoin has what's called a block time. Uh, so that's every 10 minutes, there is a reconciliation of all unconfirmed transactions on the network. So me and you can send a transaction at any time, and we should expect for it to be reconciled and, and written to the ledger permanently inside of about 10 minutes. So what they said is that we need to make sure that the amount of data that can be written every 10 minutes is one megabyte. And the reason for that is because we need to have as many people as possible running uh, a copy of the blockchain and doing that validation in a distributed fashion. So they, they are saying that, um, you know, every, every peop, every person, even from the poorest nations in the world need to be able to run a copy of the Bitcoin ledger. Um, and because of that, because of that major bandwidth limit, uh, <laughs> when there's too much traffic, uh, it it just kind of stops after a certain point. But as traffic ekes its way up, it's kind of like having a, a a single road between like Washington D.C. and New York City. Uh, and so if you gotta go, it's gonna be jammed. But if you really really gotta go, you gotta pay a big toll to get on the one road that allows you to do it, uh, in order to stop it from being an overcrowded road at all times. And so, um, it's basically just a sort of a false scarcity that's created arbitrarily by saying. You can only have one megabyte of data every 10 minutes. Now, Bitcoin did not uh, innately have a block size limit when it was issued. Uh, in fact, it had kind of a practical limit of about 32 megabytes uh, per block when it was created. Uh, Satoshi Nakamoto was asked for his opinion on what it should look like, you know, in the near term and in the long term. Uh, this was in the 2009-2010 era. And he basically said, look, Bitcoin needs to have millions of transactions or it will have none. And so he was talking about uh, Visa size scale. He specifically said we, we can scale. Bitcoin can scale faster than Visa right now using uh, today's technology and, and these kind of things. He also explicitly explained that uh, when the block size limit was added, that it was simply because the, the whole network was really immature and he needed it as a uh, like a, a way to mitigate DOS, which is uh, people maliciously sending lots of transactions in order to knock the network over. And so he put a choke point in and specifically explained like literally with code, here's how you grow this so that it doesn't become jammed. So when the network becomes more mature and more people are using it and it's starting to show, um, you know, show its show its age and show the problems of that limitation, make this very simple change. It's what we would call a hard fork today. Uh, and you basically hard fork the network in order to expand its bandwidth for people to use. So by 2017, Uh, your Bitcoin cash people were like, Hey, this is very, very clear and very simple. Satoshi gave us his, uh, his reasoning and he gave us a little bit of code to use for the implementation. And since the network is at its wits end and the fees are $50 per transaction, which is way more than any of us ever thought we would get to, uh, we should just, let's just make it a eight megabyte block size limit, or actually it started with two. The first compromise was to make it a two megabyte block size limit. Uh, they came to a soft agreement. They call it the first the Hong Kong agreement, then the New York agreement. And then there was a backstab about six weeks before this two megabyte upgrade was supposed to happen to the network. Uh, your small blockers came out and they had this whole campaign, no two X and all this other stuff. Uh, They're all wearing hats and threatening everybody. Like this is an attack on Bitcoin to try to raise the block size limit to two megabytes. The network's going to fall apart. Um, bizarre. Actually, what I, I think occurred in the background is that the, guy that created the implementation that allowed it was an independent. He wasn't a block streamer. Uh, was a guy named Jeff Garzik. Um, and there was a lot of money being raised under the auspices that Blockstream and it's uh, group of people were in control of Bitcoin. This is something that I've seen on pitch decks that, Hey, yeah, you should fund us. Cause we're in control of the protocol. We're going to, we're going to make this work for you. Uh, and then when some new guy is going to be the guy that issues the fundamental protocol that Bitcoin is on, all of a sudden they lose that control. So I think that's why it was sort of an all of a sudden no no two X, um, so then the Bitcoin Cash people the me frankly me and my, my friends excuse me we had to um, kind of come up with a, a solution really quickly uh, Bitmain uh, Jihan Wu's company the biggest manufacturer of uh, mining uh, ASICs and a couple others uh, Roger Vera was one of them uh, they they started funding the creation of a client that would. Uh, upgrade the network, and they were going to have essentially a hash war. So Bitcoin Cash was going to have an 8 megabyte block size limit and compete for hash power to see who's the real Bitcoin. Uh, That happened on August 1st, 2017. A lot of really weird stuff happened. Uh, Bitcoin Cash looked like it was going to explode up in value. In fact, I think it did actually uh, crisscross and take over uh, from Bitcoin Core uh, briefly. But then all the exchanges went down. Coinbase was down for hours. And then all of a sudden, everything turned back on, BTC was way up in value and Bitcoin cash was down quite a bit and everyone's like, oh, okay, that's it. This is the real Bitcoin based on the price. So it's this notion that the the highest price will determine the most hash power because it's what's most profitable to mine at any given moment. uh, And therefore that is Bitcoin. It's just this metric for deciding uh, in a dispute what is Bitcoin, right? So Bitcoin Cash ventured off on its own way, uh, had another upgrade to the network back to the 32 megabyte block size limit uh, from the original Bitcoin. Um, But then a dispute started to arise over, okay, what should the rest of the roadmap for restoring Bitcoin Cash to the original Bitcoin protocol look like? And there was a faction of people that wanted to add some new uh, op codes, like leave a few things turned off that have been turned off over the course of the previous, uh, I don't know, seven or eight years at that point. And then... um, but then also uh, add, what do they call it? Op Data Sig Verify, which is basically a, they wanted to add an additional opcode that would subsidize a very specific kind of token issuance behavior. Um, and then they wanted to add uh, a, a few other things. It was like three or four major things that were pretty contentious. And then the other half of the community, this was the community, uh, or this was the half I was on, was saying, hey, let's just start at the base Bitcoin protocol. Like let's take what did Satoshi give us, let's re implement that. And then, you know, maybe we can do more, you know, if there's something that we've learned and and whatever else. But the conservative approach would be if we're going to restore Bitcoin to just restore it back to all this stuff that basically nobody ever tinkered with. Like, let's see if Satoshi was right before we start presuming that, you know, this other random dev from Belgium is right about the the new way to implement Bitcoin. Right. And so uh, by November 2018, it was basically another hash war uh wherein bsv uh the bsv nodes were trying to become uh the real bitcoin cash we were fighting for the bitcoin cash ticker now uh, and saying hey bitcoin cash should have no block size limit it should restore the original script protocol basically all the original uh, ideas that make bitcoin work in the first place and then we'll go from there and um turns out a lot of similar people uh, so your Roger Ver, your uh, Jihan Wu, Hypo Yang, and a bunch of these people that were uh, on that side colluded with Coinbase and Kraken and some of these other companies here again to say, okay, you guys just run this software. This is the real Bitcoin Cash software. We're the official Bitcoin Cash dev team and all these SV people are crazy. They're going to go away real soon anyways. So just just run this, Split split off any node that's trying to run SV um blocks essentially and they'll become their own chain and they'll just quit right so uh on November I think it was November 15th 2018 we split again and so now there's a BSV a BCH and a BTC that all use SHA256 uh mining algorithm they all share a predicate history they all sync back to the genesis block um and so if you did nothing if you bought bitcoin in early 2017 and have done nothing since you own equal parts of all three chains, and you are, uh, you know, a pragmatic member of the Bitcoin civil war by de facto, and uh, and that's kind of where we're at today. Now BSV has has made a bunch of extra stride. BCH is at this point, from a technology standpoint, basically a dead project. They're, you know, the blocks have some of the blocks have five transactions in them, you know, for days at a time. Like there's, it's not really getting a lot of use. Uh, they have added some new tech and done some new things, but. Nothing special is, is happening over there. And meanwhile, on BSV, we are months away from implementing the next generation node technology where we're literally talking about uh, millions of transactions per second and uh, the kind of scale that Satoshi Nakamoto was talking about 15 years ago. Now, for some context, a million transactions a second is faster than even the, some of the fastest payment technology in the world. So that's faster than Visa, faster than MasterCard, uh, and a bunch of other things. But compared to Bitcoin Cash is capable of about 100, maybe 150 transactions a second. And Bitcoin Core is capable of somewhere between five and seven. So total, five and seven transactions per second. So we are close to a million times more efficient than Bitcoin Core. uh, And we are like 100,000 times more efficient than Bitcoin Cash. So uh, we are talking about uh, exponential levels of greater scale, proving that Satoshi was right 15 years ago uh and explaining how Bitcoin could work uh we've we've finally uh you know started to prove out some of his more grandiose theories and uh and that's that's where the chips lay right now
0: yeah so some of the you know I so I, having lived off of crypto primarily since 2019 I I still find Bitcoin Cash the most useful and because sure. and, and and the problem is it's uh I I use BSV Wherever I can. I mean, I, I've actually yeah. I, I know we had the any pay point of sale system. Yeah. I, I used to buy uh, gift cards. That was a great, yeah, a great service. <laughs> and I mean, I've done all of the all, all of this stuff. But when it comes to like being able to do, you know, debit cards or, or, or to actually yeah. use it, it, it I, Bitcoin cash is still Still ahead. And they're working it's, on some other interesting stuff there, too.
1: They are. I, I don't want to criticize the Bitcoin cashers. I, th- I think in a lot of ways, you know, they're, they're the cousins that I like in the Bitcoin uh, <laughs> context. But um, it's also it's way more liquid because it's on all the American exchanges. So you can quickly swap it for fiat, which makes it easy to have a point of sale system and those sorts of things. So, yeah, Bitcoin cash has its pluses, but uh, you can see the adoption on Bitcoin cash has not been uh, not been what anything hoped. Frankly, the split in 2018, um, was really unfortunate, really set both BCH and BSV back by, you know, years. And maybe, maybe we'll look back in a decade from now and say, you know, that's, that was the coffin in the nail. Like that's when we all died, uh, and just wouldn't admit it. So, uh, I completely concede that, uh, you know, we are all imperfect and it was probably unwise for us to bicker of the way that we did, but, it is what it is today.
0: Well, yeah, and I'm going to get into some of the other interesting stuff that some of the the difficulties that I'm having with with, with BSV. I but yeah. and even as it relates to this, I, I think the thing that bothers me the most is that there are now 1.3 billion CBDC accounts globally. I think versus 580 million crypto accounts, and uh, you know, it, it's. I mean, you've got China, you have uh, some digital rupee. There are 11 countries that, that, have, that have implemented sure. CBDCs. And uh, and if you look at the rate of adoption, there were only 30 countries even exploring CBDC in 2020, and now it's 130. Right. And like the rollout is sure. incredibly brisk. And so yep. that like I, I guess to your point, this whole thing that happened in 2017, 2018, that basically gave... The opportunity for CBDC to to really jump on the scene, yeah. and in fact, the irony is, I, and mm-hmm. I mean, we'll talk about this. I I I think that it's conceivable that you know the idea was if you have this one chain that that you know all governments will have to all all CBDCs will have to run on this one system because it will be mm-hmm. the efficient system, and you can actually. Because of the transparency and everything else, bring uh, transparency and fairness to central banks. But that's yeah. not what's happening. You're seeing like Hyperledger. If you're looking at the implementations that are happening, they're not. <laughs> sure. And 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 by the way, I don't think central banks have that um, have that desire. And so yeah. I, what what so what I'm struggling with now is so when I go out and and do these talks and I onboard people. I've got a chart in in my book where I talk about the traditional financial system does 50,000 transactions per second. So yeah. if we're going to have an, need an alternative, then we're going to need to use multiple coins. Obviously, if BSV gets to a million, but, you know, I, I list BTC seven transactions per second and then BCH, whatever it is, 260, I, you know, Ravencoin. I list a few, a few others and yeah. then I list BSV. But then when people go look up BSV, it's like everybody's talking about using BSV as the platform for CBDCs. And so then, so it's a legitimate criticism. Yeah, people, and then people are like, wait a minute, are you, and then I, and then I have to think to myself, well, am I actually going out and, uh, you know, am I getting rugged on this? Am I, am I inadvertently <laughs> pushing people to. CBDC, so there's there's that which I think is a is is kind of a marketing and a, and a and a positioning thing, and and then the other thing that that troubles me is the 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 latest this BSV association ag- node agreement thing, Yep. Which so my so my question is, and I look, I understand the arguments. So there are a lot of people that that make the argument that crypto is used for crime, and and you know you know you want something that works within the law and the only people that would want something that works outside of the law they must be drug dealers or child traffickers the reality is and i've done some polling. the bigger concern is the fact that we have a government at least in the united states that is violating constitutional rights that is censoring people, that is not beyond uh, censoring financial transactions based on political speech, which to me is a much bigger problem than drugs. Yeah. It's a much bigger problem than money laundering. And in fact, the truth of the matter is, if everybody was running on one global thing, people will just start trading in diamonds and other things. It's it, it, sure. it's not going to stop illicit behavior. So I'm, I'm struggling with um, what the node agreement means in terms of, of censorship. And if that just means if, if it's going to be, we're going to comply first and then, you know, dig into it later. Yeah. Uh, and what that means, uh, it, it, I understand the concept of honest nodes, but when I read it, the honest node concept is a technical consideration, not a yeah. legal. I, I, I don't understand that argument. And then, and then also just this, um, because I've dug into this, I so so people aren't. I I've heard Craig say that there are four four CBDC implementations. Which mm-hmm. Craig said a lot of things, so I'll believe it when I actually see it. But, but but of all of the ones that are already out there, they're not using BSV. So, what are your yeah. thoughts on this? Am I missing something?
1: So, so so there's a lot to unpack there. Um, and and I'm coming at it from a similar place as you, where I'm like I don't I don't like CBDCs because I know. Likely how they will be implemented, but, um, you know, when it comes to BSV, it's a little bit like internet technology. Like I've been an advocate of internet technology as a way to make people more free for, I don't know, since the '90s at this point. And like, has the internet made people more free? Like, I guess in some regards, like we're able to communicate more easily, and I think that that has made us, uh, you know, at least given us a propensity to learn how to be more free, or or given us some of those opportunities. But in many ways, we've become a lot less free because of the pl- proliferation of internet tech. Yeah, kind of like what we were saying about Silicon Valley. I mean, we've actually lost a lot of sovereignty over our own data and things too. And so, you know, I look at BSV and and what it could be used for. And, you know, it's it's a benign technology. It's like a hammer. And, you know, you can use a hammer to kill somebody or you can use a hammer to build a house. And like, you can't really blame the hammer for either thing. Now, that's, that's one part of the conversation. Now, the, the other side is... Yeah, but when some of the key people that are involved are the ones advocating for it to be used for this thing that perhaps we don't like, that's a little bit different. And I think that that's a fair criticism, but I think one of the really important things to understand is that if your CBDC is issued on something like Ethereum or if it's issued on something like um, Hyperledger, both of which use an account-based state system. So like a bank account, for example, your bank can say, you know what, your bank account's closed because... Mm -hmm. It's not on anybody's ledger but ours and your account is in control of us and so uh, we are going to you know put a hold or put a stop or we're going to change your balance and what are you really gonna do right now Bitcoin because it works like a cash system it is literally like cash in your hand And so if you issue a CBdc using SATs on the ledger as the underlying asset now that's they don't really have the ability to seize or confiscate or truly control your tokens when issued that way uh, in the same way. And so instead, you're actually using whatever the CBDC is, whatever fiat standard is, kind of a unit of account, but it's ultimately undergirded by the sats on which they sit. Now, that does two things, and I think this is actually really important. You can move your own coins if you have your private keys, and in order to stop you, you'd have to go through a very big rigmarole to make that stop. Now, the second thing is that in my opinion, anyways, the most powerful thing that a central bank has and the reason they have power in the issuance of the currency is that we can't know how and when and how much that currency is issued. So like we know that $30 trillion or something was printed out of nowhere over the last couple of years. The the COVID print was the biggest inflation event uh, in world history. But the math is, you know, we're just trusting the Fed's ledger as to what actually happened too. So we can't audit it we can't know. We don't know the value. We don't know how much is in circulation. And Bitcoin changes that too. You cannot issue an asset on Bitcoin without having the amount of that asset being instantly globally auditable. And so if you issue an asset like the dollar or like anything else um, on Bitcoin, you don't get that ability to front run and say, eh, yeah, we gave we gave Chase, Bank of America and stuff. We gave them the first hundred billion dollars like three weeks ago and let them kind of front run everybody and pay their own bills and do, you know like the malfeasances that that the central banking system allows and so <laughs> while i don't like central banks and i don't really like you know the way the commercial banks are kind of part of the octopus tentacles of the federal reserve system issuing them over something like bsv actually solves my main two criticism which is instant seizeability and no auditability. It solves both of those problems if issued on BSV. So in a way, it actually kind of brings them more toward us than it brings us toward them. And so I would see that as a net positive, unless there's some major thing that I'm missing about that whole concept.
0: Well, does it? Because what are the odds, like you're probably not gonna have your own private keys. It's probably gonna be a, a full custody solution under this model. Right, like, it, like if, if you assume that people are gonna are going to issue it as it is, as opposed to tokenizing on top of BSV, mm-hmm. and then well, if you tokenize on top of BSV, you can program it however you want. You could still have all of the program program programmability. It's just that it's on it's it's on top of BSV, which that doesn't actually. Th- there are all kinds of shenanigans that you
1: can pull on that. I'm
0: sure you could program things on top of BSV in it, the same way you can on top
1: of Ethereum. It would definitely depend how it's implemented. However, the way to implement it in the way that is the most scalable is to put it on top of Sats, which then then applies to what I'm saying. Now, you could run it in script and you could run it like an app and basically make it an account based system. But that would be a lot more difficult. And that doesn't scale for all kinds of reasons. So it would necessarily be a niche system forever if that's the way that they're issued. So they're also stuck on having to make a technological decision that that has political implications.
0: I, I, but, but they are. But people are doing. So that's what people are doing. So when you look at what what is implemented, when you look at what China is doing, and then you look at this thing like yeah. the regulated liability network, which, yeah. which to me is the scariest thing that I've seen yet, because it's basically an Uber ledger that will record all CBDC transactions and all digital asset transactions, and allow for multiple third parties to be involved in in censoring and monitoring it. And so, so like I look up regulated liability network, like it is, uh, it, and I was- I, I, I will taught, need to
1: study that. I, I don't know what that is. So I would need to learn about it myself.
0: And, and it goes from bad to worse because it, you know, once you start looking at, for instance, how stocks work, I, the way that stocks mm. work in the United States is, is ridiculous. There's one company DTCC that controls all of the stock certificates. They're an unnecessary third party moving into a blockchain era, right? But, regulated liability network is being developed in conjun- conjunction with dtcc rather than getting rid of dtcc they're including dtc dtcc as another third party on top of a permission blockchain connected to cbdc so when when i'm saying that this stuff is like like i i understand conceptually yeah if everybody used bsv and they used it based on set, it would be great but that's not what they're doing and that's not what their intent is like mm-hmm. like what what Congress, Congress has the power. Are they going to, do they want, who wants transparency? I've heard there's as much as $21 trillion missing. Like the amount of fraud in the U.S. system is, <laughs> is absolutely out of control. So, yeah, for sure. so, so, so that's, so that's, that's my issue. I mean, look, I don't think, I don't think people are going to adopt BSV, but the, the problem that creates in the meantime is I'm going out and saying, Hey, use BSV so that you don't get stuck with cbdc and at the same time like the main messaging out here is cbdc's are <laughs> inevitable everything's going to be on bsv and uh I, i'm just saying it creates a uh, it, it's challenging and as it relates to the bsv association agreement like i
1: i worry about sure. that also which I, still- I have which i haven't addressed yet so okay. let me as i you know while i again agree with your fears like if they're just going to go to some other system that isn't based on a blockchain at all, then it's, it's a little bit irrelevant anyways, but. No, well,
0: it's not, it's not irrelevant. It's not irrelevant. If this is a mass non-compliance movement, if this is sure. a people getting together, and th- what I'm suggesting is why don't we just say fiat never works, whether it's digital mm-hmm. or otherwise, why don't we look at the fact that actually separating money and state is something that can transform society and let's deal with it at the individual level. Well, as and opposed and, and, to and I agree.
1: And that's so, so that's, you know, I, I, I've not written about this in a long time, but I wrote about this, I think, pre-BSV, talking about underlying sats as the essentially the gold standard that underlies the new issued fiat. So basically the way that like a private bank would have, you know, before 1913 is basically, uh, you know, you get Bank of Boston would issue a certain amount of actual notes that could be redeemable in actual silver or whatever. And if you use sats as that underlying asset, then you can have an exchange from the issued dollar to the the relative amount of sats. So that the definition of a dollar includes the understanding of a certain amount of sats that underlie it. So there's there's a lot of ways to go about um, issuing this kind of stuff. And, And again, it's, it's about the tool set. Like if you've just, put a bunch of psychos in charge of things, which is the world we've lived in for a hundred plus years now, uh, you know, as it pertains to banking, then we're going to get a psychopathic system globally. And and I'm not really sure how to, how to stop that except for if you have the underlying asset, you can choose not to use the fiat that underlies it. Like BSV allows you to choose, Hey man, can I just, can I just send you the sats outside of whatever else could be written on the sat? And you know, so that, that becomes an option which i think is really really key. So for your for your privacy and for your critical function stuff, use the underlying asset. But if you're going to, you know, go buy a Slurpee at 711 or whatever else and they're not accepting BSV but they do accept the other token, the the ability to rapidly convert your BSV to $4 to get your your stuff at the at the the, the Quickie Mart. Like that's that's an option. So it's I I don't know. And frankly, if that's the way things go and, and, you know, we're like, we're heading toward tyranny (laughs) in so many ways anyways, that I'm not really sure where our option to, you know, choose a path that has none without, without having to concede that we're just going to bring some everywhere we go. Like even when we try to shed our baggage, we can't shed our baggage all the way unless we completely exit not just the dollar but exit society and that's not something i'm willing to do because i don't think you know being a, a separatist hermit is going to solve those problems now i may change my mind as i get older but for now like i, I want to live in a neighborhood and be part of society at least to a degree so
0: well well so that's a separate thing i'm actually writing it might might turn into a book on the fact that we need america <laughs> yeah. 2.0 from first principles so but, sure. but my my point on this is the default is a one world technocracy. This is what people have been yeah. working towards for a long time. This is when you look at what the Bank of International Settlements is doing and and oh, even how they're rolling Absolutely. out CBDC. And, yep. and, and the chair of the Bank of International Settlements has said this is about control. This is about monitoring. I mean, this, these, these sure. aren't conspiracy theories. So what I'm suggesting is. The default will be, and and based on their their actions already, unless we come up with something different and unless we exit their system, yeah. the default is tyranny. I don't accept tyranny. So what I suggest is we exit the dollar as quickly as we can, start using decentralized alternatives in a parallel yeah. economy now. It's not going to be everybody, but I mean, it's this is kind of a modern-day revolution of sorts. Um, sure. and, and then while simultaneously, I think we have to go back. We... I actually think we have to have a fundamental question centered around whether or not we have free will, because the model that the technocrats are trying to implement is actually based on the idea that we do not have free will. And so I think that that's the level of conversation that we need to have. Something happened to America along the way, whether our founding principles were wrong, whether there was something in the Constitution or the enforcement of the Constitution, we need to have that conversation and we need to. Um, I, I'm an, I'll, I'll start it. I don't have the answers, but I, I certainly can start by asking a whole bunch of questions and we need to have that conversation. And I actually think blockchain is a big part of what is probably the operational corruption. That has has destroyed America. I think it's been the it's it's been the the collusion of big business and government that has been the downfall. And and a lot of this yeah. is because we have systems that have no accountability that aren't tracked, et cetera. And and but sure. I don't but I don't think you can apply a blockchain to an existing corrupt system. I don't think existing corrupt systems like the one that we're in now in the United yeah. States are going to adopt a platform that's going to provide transportation that's going to provide. Yeah, no, I, uh, I,
1: I, I would tend to agree. And, and, and I think that's, it's obvious at this point that, you know, they're willing to do all kinds of things to undermine the tech and it's because they don't want to adopt that tech, uh, you know, until, until they're good and ready to adopt it exactly the way they want it to. So, um, so moving on to your, your next question about the, the BSV association. So they, they created this Nexus network access rules, uh concept. Now it's, it's based on an older concept uh, that they used to call DAR, the digital asset recovery concept, but it, it changes it quite a bit from a focus on digital asset recovery and and makes it a little more about um, basically managing traffic on the network. Now I'm I'm new to this. I had no insight uh, that this was coming out or the form in which it was coming out. So I, I got it about a week ago when everybody else did, and I've had to um, digested a little bit and also sent it to our, our, uh, company's attorneys. Cause I run a, a mining pool on BSV. So this is yep. directly relevant to my business. And, um, you know, that's been <laughs> trying to explain all of that to my attorney to come up with an opinion as to like, okay, how, how obligated are we to abide by this Swiss entity's mandate and all of this other stuff. But, you know, I I've, I've thought about it personally. My, my knee-jerk reaction is to say like, hey man, you know, if if Bitcoin Association is going to be this arbiter, then what what are we even needed for? Um, you know, as an honest node, giving proof of work and that kind of thing. But in in sitting and thinking about like all of my complaints about Bitcoin from the last 15 years, my big ideas about Bitcoin making people better, like that the incentive system is going to uh, necessarily make people want to cooperate better and th- this will make people more capitalistic but th- the best way to compete is to cooperate and all these other things that I've said about proof of work for for years now um, <laughs> the, I've been wrong <laughs> and so the what has actually happened is that Bitcoin has made most people that have interacted with it deeply it's made them objectively worse Uh, That people have undermined proof of work since day one. Um, You know, that they've colluded and created social engineering and civil attacks on the network in order to make Bitcoin Core what it is. This terrible Franken monster of, you know, this thing that kind of looks like Bitcoin but actually isn't. And, you know, it's been a big disappointment. And so I started doing research. So one of the other things that is implemented is this concept of the alert key which is something that Satoshi created and and issued, I believe it was in 2010. And then it got turned off for for the final time, I think in 2016 or 17. So not that long ago, much more in like the modern Bitcoin era. Now, what the alert key was supposed to do is allow the issuer. So Satoshi Nakamoto as the issuer of the currency. So he's kind of making himself like the, not the mint itself, but like the the arbiter of the mint, which I guess he is because he issued the protocol. Right. So, but it allowed him and only him to create network wide warnings or directives on how to manage the network if it's under attack. Now, the reason for that can be all kinds of things, but this is not something that he ever clarified in code and he didn't ever really write. He just kind of said, here's this tool. And if you get a message from me, it's probably really urgent and everybody needs to listen. But it was never used; it never got used for for anything. And so, its its use was very theoretical and never, basically, never got tested. And then, because of like once he disappeared, I can't remember who had there was some talk that maybe Mark Carpelles from uh, Mount Gox had the alert key, and there was all this stuff about like, wait, is, is the alert key even in the hands of somebody that can be trusted? And so they literally just shut it off network wide and said, okay, this whole alert key thing is gone. But I also think it's relevant that at the time there was the creation of this concept called the Bitcoin Foundation, of which Satoshi Nakamoto was a founding member. And part of what the Bitcoin Foundation was supposed to do was to. Okay, interesting. Yeah, and, and it, a lot of people don't. It was very old, and it was it, it was when <laughs> Bitcoin was in its cradle, and not a lot of people were paying attention. And then uh, as soon as Satoshi kind of faded away, it got really written off by essentially the small block or the people that control BTC. They were like, you know what? Bitcoin Foundation doesn't have any power over anything. And so it just kind of went away. But it, there is something, if you look at its constitution, if you look at the conversations in the creation of Bitcoin foundation that there were, it was kind of like setting up a little bit of a governance council for the, for the sake of, Hey, under emergencies, it can't just be up to, you know, whichever software dev is awake at night and gets the red alarm and decides what to do in an emergency. So we need some people whose job it is to, to sort of do that. And I think it should be done by committee. And now if you look at who the members are, it's actually guys, uh, if I recall like guys like Vinnie Lingham, I think was a board member. Um, so was, uh, John Matonis was, uh, was, a, was, I think the founding president, if I recall,
0: Roger Ver um, was there early. I don't know how early, but
1: he was in early. So there was a second, actually Craig Wright is a member of the Bitcoin foundation. He obviously joined a li- little late. I think he joined in 2014 before anybody had discussed whether or not he was Satoshi Nakamoto. So that's also a curiosity, but, um, they kind of existed to do a little bit what the Bitcoin Association is doing with NAR. Now, it never got pushed out like an edict or anything like that. Um, So it just kind of died on the vine. But if you look at the alert key and Satoshi helping set up the Bitcoin Foundation, you kind of see he had a little bit of this intention for some extra management under pressure. And if you look at the new the network access rules stuff, Most of it is not about returning stolen coins. Like That is mentioned, but the overwhelming majority is kind of defining a few types of attacks on Bitcoin. So what if there's an overwhelming hash power-based DOS attack? What do we do? And it's essentially, okay, so what we will do as the association, we will coordinate which block is the last valid block, and we will ignore the proof of work if we all know that that proof of work is malicious. So if we can see clearly that it's malicious, we'll make that decision and and move on. And then other other things like, okay, now what if somebody has a lot of hash power and maybe they're not malicious, but what if their action on the network with a lot of hash power is degrading the network in some way? So let's say if like Bitmain were to start mining BSV and 99% of hash power is Bitmains, but they're using a node version that has a five megabyte block size limit. And so every block that gets mined is only five megabytes and it's censoring millions of transactions across the network and degrading people's use of the network. So you could argue, okay, that might not be an attack, but it is an unacceptable degradation. And therefore we need to coordinate act and make sure that the network is just usable. And so this is relevant because we had a similar thing that happened last year where, uh, Mm -hmm. there was a pool that was doing exactly that. Like it just was a degraded user experience and nobody could get in touch with this pool that had all this hash power but had their nodes set stupid. And it was it was degrading experience. And we're all like, I mean, literally, it was it was me because I'm the CEO of Gorilla Pool, and I'm on the phone with the CEO of Tal, who's on the phone with the the guy that manages Quadlink and some of these other pools on BSV, and we're all like, hey, what the hell do we do? What's what's the right thing to do? What like what does the white paper say we should do? And we're having we're having these calls from like all night. I was up all night that first night. And we, we all kind of were saying like, shit, like I would like, should we ask Craig? And it's like, well, no, if we bring Craig in, that's kind of, that's a conflict with him and just all this other crap. So it just, it was really hairy. And then ultimately the, the, it they just kind of went away anyway. So the problem solved itself by just sort of luckily going away, but it really illustrated it, we, we need to have some of these processes defined. And so in that sense, I think the network access rules are probably a net good, although just like everything else, you add a layer of governance and then there's an opportunity for corruption to creep into that layer of governance and then you've got fresh problems. So um, I I still I have very mixed feelings about it, especially because <clears throat> it directly affects my company. Um, yep. But I don't overtly hate it, but I am also very uncomfortable about it. <laughs> so... It's 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 a little bit of a rough one for me right now.
0: Yeah. Well, look, I I know you've got to go, and I appreciate the extra time. We have we haven't even scratched the surface, though. We haven't even gotten into yeah. Craig Wright. We haven't gotten into the lawsuits or COPA. I would love to have you back yeah. if you'd be willing to come back because I think I, we I'd be very to, happy to, for sure, to, to finish the to 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 well. Well, this is going to be ongoing for a long time. But I actually think the point you just made is I I believe we have a fundamental we need to have a fundamental conversation about governance. Period. For
1: sure. Yeah. I mean,
0: again, this is what we're dealing with politically. This is what we're dealing. So, 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 I think there's some big thinking that has to be done here. And I think you're right. I think people have let. I, I know I, I've been let down by the by the behavior of of, of people in this space as well. So, yeah. so we need to take that information. What do we do with that information? Um, right. So that's that's a topic <laughs> for another conversation. All right. Well, so I know you got to go. Where, where can people find you? What's the best best way for people to?
1: All over. So I have KurtWookertJR.com. Uh, that'll link you out to all my social. But I'm literally at KurtWookertJR everywhere. So you can find me on X, Facebook, Instagram, Telegram, <laughs> anywhere else uh, at, at that handle. And um, you can watch me on CoinGeek channels. I do my podcasts and um, you know my streams and my publishing. So I write an article a week as well. All of that is on CoinGeek. So if you want to read my official stuff, it, it comes out there. And if you want to just follow me, the person I'm at Kurt JR everywhere.
0: Okay, great. Well, thank you. I again, I, I know it's a little bumpy. This is my uh, my first time doing this. So the, ne- <laughs> no the next worries. one will be smoother. But I I really appreciate your time. Thanks for sure.
1: Thank you, Aaron.